life is full of a lot of decisions, isn't it? Uh, and it can be a slippery slope, uh, to say the least. Uh, hey, let me start by just calling your attention to a quote that's on this card that was uh, either on your chair when you came in or it's still there and you may be sitting on it. Uh, this is what it says. It's, uh, it's by True Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. So if that doesn't get you excited, I can't help you. All right, thank you. Uh, this is what it says. He said, our decision to close on Sunday was our way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. Can we all agree that that was a good decision? Because yeah. uh, without that, he never finds his way into a Kanye song, right? Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I've had at least a couple dozen people tell me that Kanye wrote that song for me. Uh, has that happened to you too? Because Pastor Rick and I love Chick-fil-A. Uh, that decision turned out to be a pretty good one. I think we can all also agree that there are things that matter more than his business. Uh, it's funny because in our lives, we really have a hierarchy of the things that matter uh, but sometimes the hierarchy gets kind of wonky, right? Have you ever found yourself like putting a, a, just an inordinate amount of time and energy and effort into something that eventually you thought, you know, this really isn't that big a deal. Uh, I don't know if that's you. Uh, like uh, I have this neighbor across the street who uh, is the most meticulous person who's ever lived. Uh, you might think you're meticulous or you might be thinking of someone. Trust me. Uh, so he bought the house just a couple of years ago and uh, he took out the lawn. Now, um, the people that lived there before were not able to be super meticulous. There was some physical issues there, but, you know, they kind of kept it up. Like, they mowed it and watered it occasionally, right? It wasn't, like, totally trashed. What he needed to do was come and put down some fertilizer and turn on the sprinklers, and the lawn would have gone poof. But what he did was uh, he tore out the lawn, uh, took out all the grass out, and then he went through by hand and mined out every rock in the top 10 inches of soil. And then... He went through and uh, he put down new topsoil and then he trenched it out and put in the sprinkler system. Uh, and this has all taken two years. And every time I talk to him, he's like, yeah, I'm getting ready to throw down some seed. And guess what? Still hasn't happened. Still hasn't put down the seed. Now, I happen to know that he also has um, a wife and children that might want to spend some time with him, but he's just spent a disordinate and inordinate amount of time obsessing about the lawn. It's all good. It's his thing. Like, there's certainly worse things he could be doing with his time. And he's a great neighbor and a nice guy. Not a problem. Uh, but sometimes we get that hierarchy of priorities just kind of out of whack, right? Our decision-making gets a little bit clouded. Anybody ever made a bad decision? Yeah? Uh, I have too. How about, how about a bad money decision? Anybody ever made a bad money decision? Okay, we should all be going, yep, I certainly have. Well, throughout the narrative of the Bible, one thing we see over and over is we see God's people make bad decisions, uh, and not just like the crazy people, like the smart people make bad decisions. So as you're thinking about your bad decisions, it's okay. It's been happening all along the way. Uh, God's people made a constant stream of them. In fact, I brought a picture of one of their dumbest decisions ever. Uh, this was after they came out of, uh, out of slavery in Egypt. And you remember Moses went up on the mountain to talk to God and he was kind of gone for a little while. So they did what we would do. They made a cow out of metal and worshiped it. Uh, I think that's the obvious next step if you're not sure what to do. Like, let's melt down our jewelry, make it an animal, and then worship it. Uh, that's what they did. That was, that was a pretty dumb decision. Uh, now, lest anyone here think that you're too wise, um, or maybe you're not old enough to think that you're wise, but you're young enough to just think that you're smarter than everyone, uh, let's try this little exercise. Think back to the hairstyle that you had in the 90s, if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, I couldn't find a picture of myself, but I did find a picture of the hairstyle that I had, and it was a mistake, to say the least. 
When I was a youth pastor, I used to carry around my first driver's license that I got in 1993 or whatever, just so I could show the students the haircut, and like, they just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, it's still a smash hit. Someday I'll take up a picture of myself, but like, the bowl cut was a bad decision, wasn't it? So this is what I want you to do. Think of a fashion trend that you bought into at some point in your life that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we ever used to do that. Can you, can you think of one? Like maybe a haircut or a style. I was a kid in the 90s, so like hypercolor t-shirts, yikes. Uh, that was bad news. Uh, okay, now, now share it with somebody around you. This is something that I used to do. Let's, let's lose our dignity right here together. Okay, there was a lot of bad stuff. Does anybody have one that they just want to blurt out for me? Nobody wants to share? Lindsay Dickin. You used to do what? You used to color on your jeans. I don't see a problem with that. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad ones. Well, this week, we're going to be back in the story. Okay, the story is uh, a really great Bible study tool. It's, it's uh, excerpts and synopses of the biblical narrative, just organized to help us understand the big story, the overarching story of the Bible. And one thing we see is that life is full of decisions. Life is full of decisions, and guess what happens after those decisions? The consequences, good or bad. Now, for all of you scholarly theologians in the room, I say yes to the sovereignty of God, and yes to the fact that he created a cause and effect universe, and you make choices every day that have consequences. So all of those things I say yes to. But what we're going to see is that an awful lot of our life experiences are the direct outcome of the decisions we made right before that that consequence. God's made a way for us to simplify that process, so let's try this out. Uh, life is, uh, is full of forks in the road, places where you have, can choose one or the other, but you can't do both. Like if you wanted to be a boxer, you can't be timid. That would not end well for you. If you want to be a vegetarian, you can't also be a carnivore. Uh, what are they, what's the opposite of that? An herbivore. You can't be both. You can't be, uh, you can't be an under-the-roll person and be right. Okay, that's, that's not an option. You got to go either way. Now, that's funny. Jessica's giving me a courtesy smile over there. Thank you. I love you. Uh, you. You oftentimes have to choose one or the other. You can't do both. So I'm going to claw at your memory a little bit, blow some dust off of it. Uh, you might have to open up the box and take this information out. Way back in chapter four of the story, we're in 14 now. So this would have been like the last week of September, which is like might as well be 20 years ago for me. Um, God laid this proposal in front of his people. It's in Exodus 9, verses 5 and 6. He says, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the people on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. The essence of what he says is, hey, if you'll follow me, it will go well with you. That's, that seems like a good deal. Does that seem like an obvious choice? Like which one of those we should choose? Follow him, not follow him. Go well with me, not go well with me. Then he says a little bit later on in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, he says to the people, uh, he just makes this plain as day. He says, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And uh, I'll add this part, just in case you're not smart enough to figure out the answer for yourself. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Life or death. Choose life. He puts the choice in front of them. And constantly, what we see throughout the story is God's people always have a choice between life and death between blessings and curse. Uh, they always have the choice between victory and destruction. And you know what? That has never changed. That, that's not an Old Testament thing. That's not a Bible thing. That's, that's never changed. We have the same choice in our own lives. We're going to make choices 
And God is willing, even desiring, to guide us through each one of those so that it will go well with us. Now, does that mean nothing bad will ever happen? Every single person in this room has lived long enough to know that bad things are going to happen. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God wants to be our guide. He wants to form us in our decision-making process so that we can live according to his plan A for our lives. So when we left off chapter 13, this would have been the last week of November, which also might as well have been 10 years ago. But what was happening in the nation of Israel is that they were flourishing under King Solomon. And God made him the wisest and wealthiest person who ever lived. Solomon was doing awesome. The nation was doing well. But Solomon disobeyed God in this one area. Uh, Let me just scratch your memory. Uh, Solomon served God wholeheartedly except, remember that? Uh, He served God wholeheartedly except, and then it doesn't even matter what comes next because there was an exception. But in Solomon's case, the one thing was God had specifically told him, in fact, he had specifically told told all of Israel, do not marry foreign women. Solomon apparently liked foreign women because he married 700 of them which means he also had 700 mothers-in-law, which begs the question, how wise was he really? (laughs) See, that's funny because some of you are here with your mother-in-law. Just a joke. Just a joke. Uh, I promise, my mother-in-law is amazing. So the problem was God had told Solomon not to marry foreign women. Now why? Was God a racist? No, of course not. Some people say that. That's because they have no idea what the Bible says and they're just mean. The reason is because God told them don't intermarry with other people groups because at this time in the world, uh, there's all kinds of just really strange spiritual practice happening. And what happens if you marry someone who's entrenched in that spiritual practice? You get entrenched in that spiritual practice. Had nothing to do, it was not a racial issue in any way, but God knew that if they got into marriage with people from other crazy belief systems, they were going to get pulled away from God. Now in this chapter... What we see is the fruition of Solomon's disobedience to God in that. And what eventually happens is that the kingdom he oversees is torn apart. God's family is torn in two. God wants us to make choices, and he even wants to make them clear for us, but we can't have it both ways. He wants us to choose clearly. We either choose to follow his lead or we don't, but we can't do both. That's the essence of chapter 14 of the story. By the way, if you don't have a copy of the story and you want one, uh, if you can just take the card that's on your seat, just write your info on there uh, and write that you'd like to get one and drop it in that red box, we'll make sure and have one of those for you next week. So here's what happens in chapter 14. It's actually, it's kind of sad in some ways, but it's actually a really interesting chapter that happens. There's two principal figures. Their names are Jeroboam and Rehoboam, which is really helpful that they sound the same. That way we'll never get confused and mess up the whole story. Uh, really, really helpful. Uh, I'm kind of a pet name guy, so to avoid that pitfall, I'd like to give them pet names. Whenever I come to this section, uh, I give them simple pet names. Jeroboam, let's just call him Jerry. Okay, Jer- Jerry, Jeroboam. Uh, Rehoboam, uh, we could call him Ray, but I feel like Ray Ray rolls off the tongue a little bit better. So let's just call them Jerry and Ray Ray, okay? So we can, we can just keep them, keep them separate. Uh, I might not actually use the pet names, but hopefully the association will help, okay? Uh, Rehoboam, Ray Ray. He's the son of King Solomon. He's the rightful heir to Solomon's throne when Solomon dies. Jerry, however, uh, is kind of an industrious, up-and-coming young leader that Solomon identifies as kind of an influencer. 
uh, but he's not part of the royal family. So Ray Ray is son of King Solomon. Jerry is just uh, a guy who's a pretty good leader, it looks like. Uh, I actually have an early photograph of Ray Ray and Jerry that I think will tell you probably everything you need to know (laughs) about what happens in Ray Ray and Jerry's story. Uh, Their roles in the big story uh, are not like big, glamorous roles, but something really important to the narrative of the Bible happens during their lifetime. So this is how the Bible describes Jerry, Jeroboam, early on in 1 Kings eleven twenty-eight, It says, now Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. Okay, there's a couple of key observations. One we see is that Jerry is a young and up-and-coming leader. Solomon identifies him as a leader, and he puts him in charge of other people. Now, one of the implications that's not necessarily going to jump out at you, but that's happening right here, is that Solomon, second observation, has made his own people into slaves. They're building his empire. He's establishing a name for himself. That's, that's what, what's happening, and he's made Jerry a leader of uh, sort of a clan of slaves, if you will. So one day, Jeroboam is leaving the city, and a prophet named Ahijah approaches him, takes off his jacket, and tears it into 12 pieces. Like, that's a weird start to your day, isn't it? Kind of an odd thing to, to do. And this is, what, this is what it says in 1 Kings 11, verse 31. It says, Then he said to Jeroboam, Take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped other gods And have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. Okay, so the reason that God is going to just tear the kingdom apart uh, isn't because they married foreign women. That was just the gateway to them worshiping foreign gods. So you recall, maybe from, from last week or several weeks ago, as it was, that God blessed Solomon and made him the wisest person who ever lived. And Solomon followed God wholeheartedly, except for this this one issue. God told him, don't marry foreign women. What was Solomon's mistake right here? Solomon fell victim to a deception that we fall victim to all the time. He tried to live a life of duplicity. I'm going to follow God like 97% of the way, but over here in this one area, I'm kind of going to do my own thing over here. Like, I'm going to follow God wholeheartedly, except on tax day, right? Like, any, just name, your, name your, your little issue that we all kind of want to keep on our, you know, on our side over here. God, I'm, I'm your guy. Just don't mess with this thing, right? Solomon's trying to do the spiritual splits. And I think we can all agree doing the splits never goes well. Even when you see somebody who can do the splits, it's still disturbing. <laughs> Solomon's trying to live duplicitously. Now, this is, this is kind of a zinger. This one will kind of hurt, okay? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, He'll either love the one and hate the other, or he'll serve the one and be devoted to it and despise the other, but no one can serve two masters. God's always been clear, you cannot go two directions at the same time. Now, I'm no hellfire and brimstone preacher, if you've been around for any length of time at all, you know that. However, uh, I think if we intend to walk in God's blessing, we have to take that part seriously. Uh, It's one way or it's the other way, but it's not both ways. Solomon's duplicity makes him crazy. Duplicity clouds your judgment. It leads you farther down a path that you never intended to go down in the first place. 
And that's what happens to Solomon. He's made his people into slaves at this point. Uh, He's primarily concerned with building his own empire and establishing a name. Uh, He even tries to rage kill Jeroboam because he sees Jerry gaining influence. And this is right after he just put him in charge. Like he can't make up his mind what he wants to do here. So God says to Jeroboam, you need to get out of here. He runs away. He hides in Egypt, which, by the way, is kind of an interesting just side story. That's exactly what happened to Jesus when he was a baby, if you'll remember. Uh, King Herod tried to kill him, so his family took him to hide in Egypt. Jeroboam hides in Egypt, and then God comes, and, uh, and he speaks with him after Solomon has died. This is what he says. He says, that because of the promise I made to King David, Solomon's father, that he would always have an heir on the throne, I'm going to leave Solomon's son, Ray Ray, with one tribe, but I'm going to give you 10 tribes. Now, you're thinking to yourself, I thought there was 12. Hang tough. We'll get to that. Uh, And then God makes this commitment to Jeroboam, and it's the same commitment that he's made to every king uh, that Israel has had so far. 1 Kings 11, 38, he says to Jeroboam, if you do whatever I command you and you walk in obedience to me and you do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. If you follow me, it will go well, he says to Jeroboam. If you, you're not the heir of the throne, but if you do rightfully in my eyes, I'm going to give you the throne. And Jeroboam's eventually going to have to decide, right? Am I going to follow God? Am I going to do it my own way? Well, this is where Rehoboam enters the scene. Uh, Solomon's dead. Ray Ray is the rightful heir to the throne. So they take him to a place called Shechem for a coronation. Uh, I don't know that it'll ever happen in my lifetime, but eventually there will be a new king or queen in England. I'm not even sure what the succession is, but, uh, but you know, the current one just keeps on ticking, so who knows what's going to happen there. Uh, but I would imagine when that happens, there's going to be like massive festivities that happen, right? So that's what's happening here with Ray Ray. There's a, there's a coronation, and Jeroboam shows up. All the people are, are gathered there in Shechem, and uh, Jeroboam says, hey, how about that slavery thing? That was weird, wasn't it? Uh, you're going to get rid of that, right? And uh, the people are like, yeah, that was weird. Uh, but you're going to get rid of that, right? We're not going to do this slavery thing. And Ray Ray's got a decision to make. Now, from where I sit, and I think from where you sit, like, is it really that hard of a decision? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, but apparently, he needed to deliberate a little while. So he decides, hey, my father's dead, but all of his advisors, the advisors to the wisest man who ever lived, they're still around. I should go to them and see what they have to say. That's a good move, right? They probably picked up on some things. This is what they say to him in 1 Kings 12, 4. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, then they will always be your servants. He says, if you'll be a servant to these people, they'll serve you by choice. You won't have to make them slaves. Serving people always leads to life. It's a biblical principle that we see from beginning to end. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. He said to Peter, his go-to disciple, if you love me, feed my sheep, serve my people. Serving others is a defining characteristic of people who love God. That is just an inescapable fact of scripture. And Ray Ray has a decision to make. Is he gonna walk the way God is instructing? Is he gonna take the advice of these advisors? Or is he going to go his own way instead? Uh, Well, he decides 
that rather than taking their advice, he's going to get his high school buddies together. Uh, one of my high school buddies happens to go to this church. We have a family thing going because he's gone. So I will tell you this. My high school buddies were idiots. I don't know about yours, but mine were dumb. And uh, I'm probably, if I'm honest, I'd have to say so was I. Uh, like, I wouldn't want my own life advice uh, if I was going to go talk to my own, like, 19-year-old self, 17-year-old uh, self. Can you imagine if your 17-year-old self was making all your life decisions? Uh, wow. As, now, imagine you're the king, and you're going to your 17-year-old self for advice on, like, how to govern the nation, right? Okay, scary stuff. Uh, so he goes to them. In second, First Kings 12.10, it says, The young man who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. That's some old school mudslinging right there. I don't even know what that means. Thank goodness for the next sentence or I wouldn't be able to figure it out. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. A scorpion was like a whip with like pieces of glass and rock woven into it. Uh, effectively, what they say is, tell them, you thought slavery with my dad was bad? It's going to be even worse under me. That's the advice his high school buddies give him. And he has a choice to make. God says, serve the people. His buddies say, tell them, you have no idea how bad slavery is. Well, not surprisingly, he goes with his buddies. Uh, and not surprisingly, the people are like, eh, I don't think that's going to work for us. And the rebellion breaks out. Now, there's a very significant event in the biblical narrative that happens right here. Uh, it's really important to, to sort of understand what happens here because God's family, God's kingdom, it splits in two right here. It, it splits in half. Ten tribes break away and they choose Jeroboam to be their king. They choose Jerry. They're going to follow him, be our king. We're going to break away. This becomes what's known as the northern tribe. Now, what gets really confusing is that the northern tribe, the one that breaks away, they retain the name Israel, and the one that stays becomes known as, the, as Judah. Uh, it would be a lot you know, less complicated if it was the other way around, but the reason the one that remains be, takes the name Judah is because basically at first, only the tribe of Judah decides they're going to stay under Rehoboam's leadership, and then they're eventually, uh, the tribe of Benjamin assimilates into them, and that's why there's 12, but only 11 are counted. Sadly, the northern tribe, uh, led by Jeroboam, that becomes known as Israel, uh, they eventually, they break away and they are assimilated into other people groups and lost to history. Uh, that group of people no longer exists as a people today. Uh, however, the southern tribe, now known as uh, the Jews, we would probably refer to them as the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they're scattered all over the world now, uh, that group still exists to this day. But you have these two kings living these duplicitous lives. They're kind of at each other. Uh, Rehoboam comes down to this one decision. <laughs> this is what's crazy. Rehoboam and his high school buddies decide the entire future of like the known world. Isn't that like the dumbest thing you've ever heard? God's family splits in half because of these guys over here playing video games together. God's family is torn in two. Why, why did that happen? Why is God's family split in half? Because of spiritual duplicity. It pulled God's family apart. It's the same thing that will pull our families apart today. This is the sound of the rubber meeting the road right here. 
Okay? Duplicity will destroy your family, it will destroy my family in the same way that it pulled God's family apart. The inability to follow God completely, but only partly. The New Testament says that a double-minded person is a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. Okay? We can't have it both ways. Now, maybe you're single and you're thinking to yourself, uh, yeah, but I don't have a family right now. Being unstable and double-minded might just destroy your, uh, your literal blood family before it ever gets started, but you also have chosen family, people who might not be your actual relatives, but you're a spiritual authority to them. They care about you, and they expect that you care about them. Being double-minded, spiritual duplicity will tear families apart. You ever know anybody who just, they just seem to make a mess out of relationships everywhere they go. Like, they just, they just can't get out of their own way like this. This is spiritual duplicity. Inconsistency is the perfect way to just destroy all the good things in your life, including the good things that God is trying to do in and through you. We can learn that lesson from this group of people. Spiritual duplicity will not produce good things in your life. It will definitely not benefit your family. Now, it would be great if uh, the 10 tribes broke away and Jeroboam's, he's this up and coming leader. If, if you know, they just followed him and everything went really well and they followed God wholeheartedly, that would be awesome. That did happen for a little while. But eventually, it came time for the people to go back to Jerusalem to worship God. That's where their temple was. They wanted to go to Jerusalem. The people in the northern kingdom say to Jeroboam, listen, we want to go to the temple to offer sacrifice and worship God. Well, the temple was in Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom, in, uh, under the reign of Rere. And so Jeroboam becomes very insecure and duplicitous himself. 1 Kings 12, 26, it says, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will not now likely revert back to the house of David, back to Ray Ray's family. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord, Ray, Lord with lowercase l, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. Now, uh, here's a good example of how crazy duplicity will make you. It's a big leap from, hey, we'd like to go back to the temple and worship God to they're trying to kill me and put someone else in my throne. Like, there's a lot of steps that got to happen in between there, right? But, but he goes and just makes the entire leap all the way. Now, remember the promise God made to Jeroboam that if you walk this way, I will give you the kingdom. I will sustain you. Just follow me. God's already made good on it. He's already brought him from being a slave to being the king. But somehow, Jeroboam has lost the ability to follow God wholeheartedly in a desire to protect what he has. His duplicity is now making him crazy. He can't make a wise decision. Uh, so Jeroboam repeats a mistake, only he doubles down. He creates not one metal cow, he creates two and builds temples. You think I'm making this up? This is, this is a real thing. He creates two temples and he convinces the people that these cows are the representation of your gods. So now you don't have to go back to Jerusalem. You can just come to the cow palace and worship, worship God there. And they, they sort of go along with it, um, which is pretty crazy. How do you think God responded to that? Like favorably? Like, yeah, that makes sense. Like you could at least make it a really like manly buff looking cow if you're going to make it, you know, a representation of me. Of course God doesn't respond favorably. God had Jeroboam and Israel riding along on a highway. Things are kind of looking up. Things are going pretty smooth. And then Jerry just grabs the wheel and jerks the whole thing into the ditch. It just, it just comes off, off the rails. 
Have you ever been around someone who just couldn't get out of their own way? Have you ever been someone who just couldn't get out of, their, out of your own way? Uh, have you ever been with someone who's like freaking out about a situation, but you're like emotionally detached? It's not happening to you. So you're thinking to yourself, if you could just calm down for a second, uh, actually everything's going to be fine. But because they're so worked up, they're just creating chaos. That's Jeroboam. He's making all kinds of problems for himself. And the outcome of this horrible decision-making on the part of these two kings is that Israel, the whole nation, the two parts of the kingdom, they enter a really dark period uh, that's, uh, that basically is just a low point in their history. And there's a whole succession of really deep struggle and really messed up kings and unrest for both Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. What I find interesting as I consider Solomon and Jeroboam and Rehoboam is that the Really, the only thing in their way is Solomon, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam. Other than that, they have everything they need to succeed. God's standard hasn't changed, and the one and only thing that they're trying to protect, they all eventually lose. Rehoboam wanted to keep the people under his thumb, and they rebelled. Jeroboam wanted to keep them from going back to Jerusalem to worship, but eventually, they went back to Jerusalem. God gave them instructions on the way to go, and it seems like that was the only direction they couldn't go. Uh, Does that sound like you on certain days? Because that really sounds like me on certain days. Uh, I could identify that in my life uh, over and over. And the outcome of their inability to follow God wholeheartedly is that for the remainder of the Old Testament period, God's family is divided and there's constant friction between them. That's the outcome of their spiritual duplicity. So what do we learn from that? What can, we, what can we put to practice in our own lives that we see happening over and over? How do we apply chapter 14? Thankfully, there's another king that comes along during this period. He's actually the third king of Judah. His name is Asa. Now, he's in the family of Solomon. And uh, during Asa's reign, that roller coaster ride between blessing and judgment, that actually levels off for a little while. Now, he actually brings... Stability, And in 1 Kings 15, it's page 200 in the story. This is what it says about Asa. It says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Asa ended the cycle of stupidity. And he ended up with a legacy, something to pass on. Now, uh, I meet with this group of guys on Monday morning, represent, uh, good day, yeah, that's right. Uh, we have an awesome time together, and we've been reading this book together. Uh, you know, it's sort of a manly guy's book, because, you know, obviously. Uh, why is that funny? Just kidding. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, that they talked about in this last chapter was, you know, if you were to describe the modern picture of a man who's just a really good Christian, you know what you'd probably come up with? A man who's just a really nice guy. Just a really nice guy. Or a woman who's just a really nice lady. Uh, Asa was not just a really nice guy. That's not what made him a person who was after God's heart, who was fully devoted to God. Asa was a warrior. Uh, He went out and went to battle against people who would otherwise oppress and attack God's people. Now, let me ask you a question. We live in this age where uh, there's all kinds of things coming at you, coming at your family. Uh, I don't know how much you believe in the the idea of spiritual warfare, but if there's good, there's evil. If there's God, there's an enemy. 
Uh, there's all kinds of things coming at your family. So answer me this question. Does your family need you to be a nice guy or a nice lady? Or does your family need you to be a warrior? Yeah, that's what Asa was. Asa comes along and he fights for justice. Asa comes along, he made peace where it could be made, but he wasn't afraid to do battle. Above all else, he didn't make decisions on the basis of being comfortable or what was expedient for him or on the basis of being liked. Uh, He didn't do like Jeroboam and set up alternative places of worship. Uh, I was at Costco the other day and they have an 86 inch television. Talk about an alternative place of worship. You kidding me? Asa doesn't do this. He doesn't compromise his integrity to get a little more. He drew a line. In other words, he set the standard and then he did the hard part. He held the line. He held the standard. Sometimes we think doing what's right is a boring way to live. Uh, following God's boring. Like just, I'm going to do what's right, and that's going to make me a really nice, boring person. I'd say a life of doing what's right is a thousand times the adventure of a life of just following the path of least resistance. Anybody can do that. Asa decided, I'm not going to fall into the fickle succession of kings who just bend to whatever's expedient or easy. Uh, those guys are remembered as fools. Asa is remembered as a man of principle. He's remembered as a good king, as a king who had character, a king who fought for his people, a king who stood for what was right. Now, here's the big idea. Uh, Doing what's right is how you fight for the people you love. Uh, You have a family, you have friends, you have people you care about uh, who need to be fought for. Doing what you know is right is how you fight for them. I just want to share a quick story, okay, with you. Uh, There was a woman who was on staff at the church that I worked at several years ago now, uh, and I was kind of like her direct authority in the organizational chart, and I got a call from a pastor at another church. Uh, This is kind of protocol in church world. You probably don't do this in the business world, but he called me and said, hey, I would like to meet with this uh, lady because I'd like to offer her a job uh, at our church. Now, I'm thinking to myself... Uh, bummer, because she's awesome. However, like, yeah, if there's an opportunity for her, I want her to have it, right? And I think, I think we would all feel that way. So I said, yeah, please, go, go right ahead. Uh, you know, we hope she decides that she loves us more than you, but, but we want what's best for her. So, uh, so they had their conversation, she accepted, and she was going to meet with me to tell me, you know, just whatever, the two weeks notice, I already knew it was coming, whatever. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, like, I bet she's going to be, like, you know, in some small way appreciative of the fact that this opportunity was out there and I was cool with it. Um, but when she showed up, she was furious. She was, she was like demonstratively emotional to the point where she was barely coherent. Like I couldn't even really put together why she was upset, but she was visibly upset. And then she asked me the question that revealed everything. She said, why didn't you fight for me? And I immediately remembered Uh, Not that I had forgotten this, but probably four or five years earlier, uh, before this happened, her and her husband had gone through a really just difficult stretch in their marriage, like normal family stuff, not not like crazy outlandish things, but uh, they were just they were just dealing with some difficult issues of of life, and he decided, you know what, it's easier for me to just peace out. He just bolted, he got remarried, and just left her life. And uh, I realized when she asked that question, it had nothing to do with me had nothing to do with this job, had nothing to do with the way I had handled it. She just felt abandoned in general. Uh, Understandably, I think we could all probably empathize with that. 
His problem, her husband was, he wasn't willing to fight for her. She felt like, uh, even my own husband isn't willing to fight for me. He wasn't willing to just make the right choice. He knew what to do. It wasn't a matter of knowing what to do, it was a matter of doing it. Uh, I find in my life all the time, it's rarely a matter of knowing what to do. It's almost always a matter of doing it. Uh, Dave Ramsey says, if I could get the guy in the mirror to behave, I'd be rich and skinny. I think that's true for pretty much all of us. It's not a matter of knowing what to do, it's a matter of doing it. Now, I'm not talking about religion or rules or dogma. I'm talking about when we get to the place of um, God's given me some authority here in this relationship, and I know that if I make this choice, it's going to be destructive, and then we got to decide what to do. I'm talking about that kind of doing what's right. The choice to honor the sacrifice and all the length that God has gone to to save me or to disregard it for what's expedient for me. In order to do what's right, we have to do some things differently than everybody else. Doing what's right is how we fight for the people we love. It's how we uh, express our gratitude for what God's done. It's how we leave a legacy like Asa did of being men and women of character. Asa did one simple thing. Okay, it's not a long list of rules. It's one simple thing. His heart was devoted to God his whole life, fully devoted to the Lord all his life. Uh, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Um, we're just going to we're going to sing a couple of songs, really just to express our gratitude. Um, to God. Um, But I want to consider this one other point on the story uh, as they're getting ready. What was wrong with all these kings? I mean, wasn't Solomon supposed to be like super wise? And, you know, these other guys, like they knew Solomon, they hung around with him. Surely they gained some kind of wisdom. Were they just like sincerely stupid? I mean, it kind of seems that way. Like, did they just sincerely have no discipline in their lives? What was it that would make them do such outlandish, foolish things. I don't think they were sincerely undisciplined or sincerely unintelligent. I don't think that's it. I think it's a little thing called the power of sin, and every one of us here can be a victim of it. We see it over and over. A lot of us don't think of ourselves as as being victims to the power of sin, because let's be honest, that sounds weird, right? Like, that sounds spiritual, that sounds kind of, you know, ethereal and crazy. Uh, I'll just give you this example. Have you ever in your life known that you shouldn't do something and then done it anyway? The answer is yes. More than once. That's the pull of sin. That's the pull of sin at work in our lives. Now, the good news is the Bible says that we are united with Christ in his death. That was God's answer to the problem. Even the wisest king who ever lived couldn't escape the pull of sin. The Bible says that we're united with Christ in his death, meaning that when he paid the penalty for our sin, when he paid the penalty for all sin on the cross, so did we. Our sin was accounted for. When he defeated the power of death at his resurrection, so did we. Jesus didn't come along and say, okay, here's the rules, now listen close because life is a test. He didn't say that. He said, follow me and life is yours. I have come to give them life to the full. The good news doesn't say, be good and try harder. The good news always says, Jesus was good for you. Jesus was good for you so that you can be free from the power of sin. So how do I live a life of doing what's right? Does it really just come down to following the rules and being really smart and disciplined and able to make the right decision? Uh, Would you stand with me? I want to read with you some of the best news you've ever heard 
and what I think is a great description of how to live a life of doing what's right. It comes from Romans chapter 6, verse 5. I think it'll be on the screen. It says, since we have been united with Christ in his death, we also will be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also, so you also should consider yourselves dead to the power of sin. It has no grip on you. Consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. How do I live a life of doing what's right? I live for the glory of God. Just as Christ lives for the glory of God, I live for the glory of God. You go to work for the glory of God. You interact with your family for the glory of God. You don't give people the finger on the street for the glory of God. Okay, you do everything in life for the God, for the glory of God. You exist as a reflection of God's glory. Because of Jesus, you are not a slave to the power of sin. You can have every promise and every blessing because Jesus has paid the bill. And we are going to sing to celebrate that. Thank you that you have victory in mind. It's already ours. It already belongs to us. Our choice is to just live in it now. So God, I pray that you would give us both the power uh, and the confidence, the boldness to go out and live in the world as victors, as those who have been bought with a price and who have inherited your authority. God, thank you for every good thing that you are working in us. Thank you that you care about our needs, those who are uh, struggling physically or financially or relationally. That's not lost on you. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize the authority we have and live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Rick.